Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. In 1979, sociologist and NYIH founder Richard Sennett and philosopher Michel Foucault discuss the connections between the history of sexuality and self-consciousness. In this episode of The Vault, the two discuss their research and, by extension, the underpinnings of ideas of solitude. I'd like to read you something that I, well, actually, both of us have, have tried to set out as for ourselves the rationale in doing what will appear to be a rather bizarre project. Excuse me if I read this much. I begin by trying to set out why we have become engaged in this project. We know three solitudes in society. We know a solitude imposed by power. This is the solitude of isolation, the solitude of anomie. We know a solitude which arouses fear in the part of those who are powerful. This is the solitude of the dreamer, the homme revolté, the solitude of rebellion. And finally, there is a solitude which transcends the terms of power. It is a solitude based on the idea of Epictetus that there is a difference between being lonely and being alone. This third solitude is the sense of being one among many, of having an inner life which is more than a reflection of the lives of others. It is the solitude of difference. In psychoanalysis, this idea of distinct inner life, being a distinct person in oneself is called ego, the work of Jaspers and Heidegger is called being. Each of these three solitudes has a history. In the ancient world, the solitude imposed by power was exile. In 17th century France, the solitude imposed by power was banishment to the countryside. In a modern office, the solitude created by power is a sense of loneliness in the midst of the mass. In the ancient world, the detached dreamer whom the powerful feared was a Socrates when who set the laws of the state against the laws of the state, a discourse of superior law, an ideal is against an established order of power. The scientific heretics of the century, 17th century set against the established domain of law a different kind of law, natural law measured of social reality. The modern homo havolte and artora genet sets against the order of power, the truth of lawlessness. The solitude of difference of an inner life more than the reflections of other lives similarly historical. The lines between inner and outer are constantly redrawn in the history of a lifetime, just as they are redefined in the evolution of the culture. This seminar is based on the notion that sexuality plays an important role in articulating the history of all three of these solitudes. The management of sexual life can become an instrument in the hands of the institutions of power which creates isolation. For instance, Victorian medicine so managed the sexuality of women that they were cut off by an abyss of fear and self-loathing from sexual fraternity with men. Sexuality has also been a medium of individual revolt against the social order. Again, as in the case of those women at the end of the 19th century who rebelled against the Victorian code 
by choosing to live alone. And if there is anything which psychoanalysis has taught us about the third solitude, the solitude of difference, it is that the evolution of ego strength revolves around sexuality, around the developing self-consciousness of what ethical person, I said my member, is called a human being's sexual print. The method of this seminar is bound to make those of you who are historians uneasy. We're a little cocotte in this. We, we hope it makes you very uneasy. Michel Foucault and I shall be comparing the connections between sexuality and solitude in two periods of Western history, 1,400 years apart. He will principally be concerned with these connections as they appear in the formation of the early Christian church. I shall be concerned with them in the secular, supposedly scientific discourse of the 19th century. His point of departure is the formation of monasticism, mine is medical wisdom about masturbation. And good historical positivists, if you are, your immediate reaction to this project is likely to be, there are so many differences between these two eras and these two subjects, what is the point? The simplest answer I can give to that is to say that this project is a work of excavation. The source of much contemporary fears about the imagination about the truth, stability, or reality of imaginative life is buried in the kind of attitude the Victorians had about solitary sexual fantasy. The great fear of masturbation which dominated 19th century medical and educational practice no longer haunts us directly, but the fear of social disintegration, if sexuality is not regulated, continues to haunt us. And as I shall argue, this fear is in turn the way modern culture expresses its fear of the social consequences of unbridled imaginative activity. By studying sexuality and solitude in the 19th century myself, I hope to unearth some of the causes of this fear of imagination. And in turn, the Victorian fears about masturbation were not simply epiphenomena, aberrations of scientific inquiry or the like. They expressed in their turn deeply rooted ideas of the relationship between mind and body, speech and desire, control and expression, of which Victorian doctors themselves were unaware. Their attitudes are buried in the fundamental formulation Christianity gave to the relationship between <coughs> desire, discourse, and political control. Monsieur Foucault's concerns are with unearthing that formulation. Now, my own focus in this seminar is on the second solitude sexual solitude which arouses the fears of the instruments of power. Beginning with the publication of Onania at the opening of the 18th century and its adaptation into French and scientific correction by Tissot in the middle of the 18th century, a literature develops whose theme is that solitary sexual pleasure is a threat to society. Through masturbation, an individual may invent a world of imaginary sexual pleasures more potent than the pleasures he or she could experience living with another human being. The seductions of masturbation in adolescence may thus deform the subsequent career of an adult as a parent. This is how the family as a group is perceived to be threatened by solitary sexual acts. In this literature, moreover, the threats of fantasy are imposed on a language of nature, normality, the healthy. The adolescent experience of sexual fantasy and masturbation may derail a person from becoming a normal adult, which is to say that nature is vulnerable to deformation, that the natural will not inevitably be victorious in the course of human development. Similarly, the normal family is vulnerable. Understanding this graft of fear of fantasy and a language of normality is important, I believe, because it shows us how a dominant institution, a dominant organization of life like the heterosexual family and feel itself threatened despite its own, its very own dominance and prevalence. Tissot and his medical colleagues believed in nature. They were not cultural relativists. Yet we see revealed in their fears of masturbation a sense of how precarious is the natural, even if almost all adults live naturally. It is the way to unearth unspoken discourse, image fragments, unconnected thoughts they had about something else about the power of imagination, this overreaction to masturbation, this sense of threat about the constitution of healthy family discourse is the issue on which I shall focus. It is the way to unearth unspoken discourse, image fragments, unconnected thoughts they had about something else, the power of imagination in which we still have. 
to revert to the organization of our seminar. Explaining these fears is impossible simply by recourse to those familiar tried and true friends, the forces at work in the advent of industrial capitalism. We must go back much deeper than this. The fear of solitude as an erotic condition appeared as a motivation in the organization of the early Christian church. The hermits in ecstatic solitude is looked on as in danger of always becoming a heretic. The truth of Christianity, the power of the organized faith to hold firmly the lives of its believers is set against the ecstasy and spontaneity of the hermits. For Christian truth to prevail, there must be organization. In the writings of Cassian, for example, there are six degrees of excellence in the monk. The consummate sixth degree occurs when the monk is insulated against all attacks of imagination. The ideals of renunciation espoused by St. Benedict and others focus not so much on the question of legal marriage, rather renunciation consists in preventing oneself from having sexual fantasies, something Cassian feared would all too easily occur if the Christian were physically alone. The danger of solitude was eroticism rather than sexuality, a distinction that we really have to pursue at, uh, in some depth in the course of the seminar. Faith and community are thus set against the waywardness of the solitary believer. Sexuality becomes the middle term between the power structure of faith and the freedom of solitude. The literature on masturbation, which begins to develop in the 18th century, is in one way a restaging of the drama of the formation of the early Christian church. Social order is set against solitude. Again, sexuality is the battlefield on which this struggle is fought. If I may put the matter in an extreme way, it is only because our culture has a Christian history that we have the attitudes towards the erotic dangers of being alone which we do, attitudes which are far different from the ancient Hebraic injunction against onan sin, which is the sin of what we would call today coitus interruptus. Remember that it comes, comes out. It's not masturbation as we would call it. Unlike ancient Jewish attitudes towards sex, we consider the bond between man and wife something the law must consecrate and enforce because naturally, so we think, it is not strong enough to enforce itself. The ancient Hebrews had every confidence that exceptions from this bond were less pleasurable. We do not have such confidence. As a result of this Christian heritage, we conceive that the marital bonds need to be enforced in order that its pleasures be learned, that pleasure will be created as a result the exercise of power. Natural pleasure is the child of faith in that power. But it is also true that history is never simply a matter of events restaged, contradictions reproduced, fears repeated. There is also an immense gulf between the Christian fear of solitary ecstasy and the medical psychiatric fears of masturbation. This difference has to do with the language of union with God on the one hand, and a discourse wholly secular and scientific in its suppositions on the other. The Christian community of the early monasteries is a way station to the ultimate form of community, communion with God. The social community of marriage, which the medical savants of the 18th century sought to ensure was an end in itself. The idea of the family as a secular community, assuring by its process of formation, a citizenry who could participate in a secular society, had to place a great emphasis on sexuality. If sex went wrong, the family went wrong. This is one axiom of enlightened medical opinion by the middle of the 18th century. It is complemented by a second equally important. This is the belief that human beings are made rather than born, developed rather than exist. In the words of Philippe Arias, by the middle of the enlightenment, the child is no longer considered, this is bourgeois, enlightened bourgeois opinion, no longer considered an incipient adult, child earlier was, but a different creature from the adult. The child must be transformed into an adult, and the shaping of his or her sexuality is the major event in causing that transformation, a shaping which comes about principally in removing the child from autoeroticism. Whereas in the 18th century, the physical degradation of the body was emphasized in literature on masturbatory illness, in the 19th century, a moral language of description becomes more prominent. Masturbation becomes more of vice and less a disease of human nature. And as it becomes seen as a vice, 
where a fantasy spun out about the character of the masturbator, the consequences of the act. Few boys, if any, had hair on the palms of their hands, but scientific opinion was convinced that it should appear. The imagined symptoms of the vice made the body a site of fantasy, legitimated the fantasies of the controllers themselves. This more fantasy-laden indictment of masturbation by the 1880s becomes an opened indictment of sexual fantasy as such. From 1780 to 1880, the character of the masturbator changes from someone akin to a slothful animal to someone who is a social rebel, changes from an idler to a crazed, wild creature. It becomes possible to express fears about the power of fantasy in everyday life by finding a sexual talisman. This fear of fantasy and sexuality is like lifting the curtain on a much greater attitude towards solitude. The fear that in solitude, through fantasy, one replaces social relations. Fantasy is what cuts emotional bonds between people. That larger fear is what the sexual history has to teach us. Now, this is the kind of simple introduction to the themes which occupy us both. And we thought we would begin by discussing avant Christine, before the advent of that fear of sexual fantasy as such, by discussing the Stoics and their attitudes towards sexuality. And uh, it's at that that Michel Foucault would like to begin with a, a discourse which is based on the interpretation of dreams. It's wonderful, they give it this title. We will be reading in the next class, Cassian on the Interpretation of Dreams and Freud on the Interpretation of Dreams. The elephant is just a gross beast, yet most worthy of all the rest and which abounds most in sex. I will tell you a point of his honesty. He never changes his mate and loves her tenderly whom he has chosen, with whom, notwithstanding, he couples not, but from three years to three years, and that only for five days, and so secretly that he is never seen in the act. But the sixth day, he shows himself abroad again, and the first thing he does is to go directly to some river and wash his body, not willing to return to his troop of companions till he be purified. Be not this goodly and honest creditor in a beast by which he teaches married folk not to be given to much to sensual and carnal pleasures. I'm sure you guessed that this text was written by Saint-François de Salle, in the beginning of the 17th century and was translated in the 1630. That's a quotation of this. We recognize easily in this text a very familiar picture, the picture of a strict, austere, and rather sinister sexual ethics. And at first glance, this ethics has been ours for centuries. We recognize one, the monogamic principle, two, the obligation of truthfulness between wife and husband. Three, the idea that the sexual act by itself is something bad, both so shameful that it can't be accomplished in the presence of other people and so physically dirty that one has to wash and purify after it is done. And four, recognize also the principle that the sexual act has to be performed in order to procure. This pattern of sexual behavior is well known. Most of the time, it is referred to as a typical expression of the bourgeois morality. And following the political or philosophical idiosyncrasy of the interpreters, this sexual ethics is explained either by the asceticism linked to the development of Western bourgeoisie in the 16th or 17th century, or by the necessity of increasing productive forces 
from the 18th century down to now. But uh, this same pattern of sexual behavior, what we could call the elephant pattern, the elephant pattern has been also attributed not to the modern bourgeoisie, but to the Christian morality, or worse, and in a more uh, vicious way, to this monster some authors call uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. At this point, I'd like to introduce an incidental remark. It would be, I think, very interesting from a historical and political point of view to study the raise and the use of this bizarre notion of Judeo-Christianity, of Judeo-Christian tradition. On one hand, this notion has been used since, I think, the end of the 18th century, Hagen and so on. From this moment, it has been used and developed in what uh, I should call the anti-Semitic, anti-clericalism. This uh, anti-Semitic, anti-clericalism you can find in several socialist movements, but also, of course, in Nietzsche and among a lot of post-Nietzschean writers. The political migrations of this theme of Judeo-Christian tradition, the political migrations of this theme from the left to the right and reversely are, I think, of a great interest for an historical study of our present. But it is also worthwhile to note that in the uh, 19th century, there were two ways for the self-interpretation, the self-understanding of our Western societies. Either our societies have interpreted themselves from the economical point of view, and that means from the point of view of capitalism, or they have interpreted themselves from the point of view of religion, using as a case this notion of Judeo-Christianity. And it is interesting to follow the oscillations from the Hegelian analysis of Judaism and Christianity opposed to the Grishische Welle, then to the Marxist economical analysis of capitalism, and back to the Judeo-Christian problematics with Nietzsche. And of course, Max Weber is at the cross point of those two main uh, interpretations. In a way, you can say that all of us are rebellions, since the problem of Max Weber still remains nowadays. Is it possible to establish a complete or at least an adequate picture of the relationships between economical activity or economical processes and religious experiences or religious ideology? But we can say also that the problem is, have we to remain Weberian? Are those categories of capitalism, Christianity, asceticism, and so on, adequate to the field we want to excavate? That is, I think, one of the critical enjeux of this seminar. And on my part, one of the reasons why I am interested in this problem of sexuality and of history of sexuality, the reason is a methodological one. Is it possible to get rid of those two great categories of our modern self-interpretation, capitalism and Judeo-Christianism? The field of history of sexuality could be the proof ground for this problem. But Let's come back to our elephant. <laughs> the good manners of the elephant are presented uh, by Francois de Sales as an example, an exemplum for the sexual behavior of human beings. We have to stop with our dirty things and become elephants of sexual morality. You can find this theme of the elephant pattern of morality, not only in religious texts, but also in the works of serious naturalists, as serious, for instance, as Buffon, or as Aldrovandi in the very beginning of the 17th century. Then we can imagine a kind of test, a kind of historical test, I would call the elephant test. How far? Going back in the history, could we find the use of this exemplum? At which moment 
could we find the formation of this pattern? When did the values of monogamy, of truthfulness, of procreative sexuality, when did the disqualification of sexual act as something dirty began to be proposed to human beings through the exemplum of the elephant? And perhaps the answer to this unimportant question could help us in answering a much more important one. Is this pattern of conduct the expression of capitalist society or of the bourgeois mentality or of the Judeo-Christian tradition. To this unimportant question, the elephant test gives us an obvious but still surprising answer. We find, of course, the exemplum of elephant proposed to people all throughout the Middle Ages. And of course, in this famous text, the Physiologus, a book written in the late antiquity, it has been one of the most famous books in the Western society or through the Middle Ages. And of course, you find the exemplum of the elephant with the same moral conclusion. But what is the most striking is that one can meet the same theme even among the naturalists, the pagan naturalists of the late antiquity. For instance, in Elianus and all those naturalists, more or less under the influence of philosophical doctrines, who seeked in the, the order of nature, a model for human rationality and a norm of, for human behavior. In alien, for instance, the elephant is much more uh, moral than in the other because he makes love only, he has sex only once in his life. But uh, in Plin, for instance, I read it in French because the translation from Latin to French, then from French to English is too difficult. So Plin writes, C'est par pudeur que les éléphants ne s'accouplent que dans le secret. Le mâle engendre à cinq ans, la femelle à dix ans. La femelle ne se laisse couvrir que tous les deux ans, et dit-on pendant cinq jours chaque année, pendant pas davantage. Le sixième, les couples se baignent dans la rivière et ne rejoignent leur troupe qu'après le bain. Ils ne connaissent pas l'adultère, ils ne se livrent pas pour les femelles de ces combats mortels chez les autres animaux, non qu'ils ignorent la puissance de l'amour, car on cite un éléphant qui fut amoureux d'une marchande de couronne et qui était par ailleurs la maîtresse d'un célèbre garamérien. Un autre éléphant fut amoureux d'un jeune soldat, Ménandre, Syracusain qui servait dans l'armée de Ptolémée, et quand il ne voyait pas son jeune soldat, il manifestait son chagrin en refusant de manger. As you see, the elephant pattern exists in the late antiquity in a pagan society, and it's quite clear that uh, Saint Francois de Sales has transcribed exactly the description of Plinus. So the elephant test shows us that this pattern of morality did exist very earlier than capitalist development or earlier than Christian. We have with this text, Plinus, the indication of the fact that this pattern of sexual conduct was proposed to people as early as the first century and in an entirely pagan society. But I think that we could get back much further. But there is a point at which we should have to stop. It is Aristoteles. And it's impossible to find in Aristoteles, even in the several passages when he speaks about the elephants, such a moral pattern. His description of the elephant does not offer such an example. Of course, we don't have to give too much importance to this elephant text. But it can play the role of an indicator. During the long period, which separates Aristoteles from Linus, or the fourth century before Christ to the first century after death, a pattern of sexual morality was built up and proposed to people, not as a legal code, but as a moral prescription and highly recommended way of life. What we call now the bourgeois morality, or the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition about sexual life is in fact an invention of pagan societies. Monogamy, 
truthfulness, uh, sexual act uh, obliged to be procreative, and at the same time despised, all that came to us neither from economic necessity nor from an ascetic type of religion, but what from what we thought was the smiling world of paganism. I don't say that Christianity or capitalism had no influence in this long history. But our austerity, our sexual morality, in its largest features, come from the paganism and has there its deep root. But we have to go further and ask in which kind of moral system this prescription of sexual austerity took place. I'd like to consider two types of documents. One of them is unique. It is the only interpretation of dream which remains in its world from the antiquity. It was written in the middle of the third century by Artemidor, a pagan author, inspired by or under the influence of the Stoic philosophy. And the other documents which I'd like to comment are the philosophical uh, literature about marriage and the way to behave in married life. Let's consider the first of those documents, the interpretation of dreams by Artemidor. Of course, this book is an audio critique. It is not a treatise of sexual behavior. It is a treatise about the previsional value of dreams. The section of the book is devoted to the sexual dreams, or the dreams in which the dreamer dreams that he has sexual activity. This part of the, the treatise is interesting for us for several reasons. The first is that we have there, not of course an exhaustive enumeration of all, of all what's possible in matter of sexual acts. Nobody succeeded to give such an exhaustive enumeration, of course. But we have there the largest enumeration we have got from all the Greek and Latin literature. The fact that those acts are described in this text as dreams, and the fact that they are matter of interpretative analysis, made, of course, easier for Archimedes, the crude evocation of a lot of rather strange practices, which ordinarily are hidden behind literary formulations. The second reason why this text is interesting is that the text gives nearly always an economical or political or social interpretation of the sexual dream. The reason of that economical or social interpretation, the reasons, the first one is that the book has been written, of course, for men, for men having an active life, either as pater familias at home, or as citizens in the city, or as merchants, or as landowners. And it is a treatise of practice life. When you have such and such dream, what do you have to do after that in your social life? So it is, it is not only of course, not a psychological treatise about the deep meaning of the dreams. It is a practical book about what to do in the everyday life when you have such and such dream. That's the reason why the interpretation is, of course, and naturally an economical social one. But there is also another reason for this economical interpretation. In Greek, the words used for social and economical activity have often a sexual meaning. And this polysemantism is one of the keys of the of Artemidorus interpretation. For instance, the Greek word usia means both wealth and sperma. Blabe means damage and success. And uh, blabe means also to be submitted to a sexual assault or to be passive in a sexual relation. Uh, ergasterion means work, both workshop <clears throat> and rather analysis. Is that we can see rather clearly. What kind of value is attributed by Archimedes and all the traditional represents 
to such and such sexual act. If a sexual act in a dream is the sign of a future profit or benefits or success, then we can guess between certain limits, of course, that the same act had for Artemidor and for people of his time a positive moral value and reversibility. Of course, this correlation between the economical signification of an act in the dream and the moral value of this act in reality is not a strict correspondence, but it gives, I think, rather good indications about the Greek and Roman evaluation system of a large set of sexual activities. In the first paragraph, Artemidorus speaks of sexual <laughs> acts which are supposed to be conformed to law. I don't want to comment now this notion of conformity to law. What strikes me in the text is, of course, that the first and best dream you can have, and which has always a positive signification, this dream is the dream of having sex with your wife at this condition that she consents to this relation. Then, from this point of departure, you have the expose of different other acts, none of them being better than the first one, none of them being as good as the first one, which is the sex act with the wife. And what's striking is the fact that the classification of those different acts does not depend upon the nature of the act, but depends on the social relations in which the sex partners are involved. First of all, the classification follows the different fields of social life where those sexual acts can take place. After the wife, then comes the ergasterion, the brother which prostitutes. And this dream has not a very bad signification, but not a very good one. First, but because you have to spend money with the prostitutes and that it is a little shameful to go in such place. First category, first class, the, the, the sexual act in the ergasterion. The second class of act is the acts which begin at least in the street, where you can meet women. Third one, it is your own house where you have your slaves, boys and girls. And the fourth class is the circle of your friends. In this circle, you can meet, of course, the wives of your friends, but you can meet also your friends themselves. And the sex with all of them. So, you see the four categories, four classes of possible sexual act. You can easily recognize in this first paragraph the different places, the different topoids of social life. Sex dreams are typified from the point of view of the social space. But there is something more. In each of those fields, there are other differences. But those differences are not related to the nature of sexual activity. They are related principally to the social status of the partner. The problem to know the meaning of the dream and the differential meaning of the dream, the problem is to know whether the sex partner you have in the dream is young or old, rich or poor, socially superior or inferior to you. If he's a slave or if he's free, that's the point. Not at all the nature of the sexual act. That is quite clear regarding, for instance, homosexuality. Nothing like this category, nothing like this notion of homosexuality appears in the text. The problem, for instance, is to know if your partner is a slave or if he's free, if he's rich or poor, for instance, to dream to have that you have sex with your slave is a rather good has a rather, rather good signification that means that you are rich or that your wealth will increase because the slave is a part of your wealth. And the problem is not at all, of course, you know, if your slave is a boy or a girl in your dream. Nevertheless, there is at least one thing 
which deals directly with the nature of sexual activity. It is the problem of being active or passive, more precisely, the problem of penetrating versus being penetrated. And this you find as a differential element, as a, as a discriminant all along the text. But as we see in the text, the significative differences between those two attitudes, penetrate or, or being penetrated, are not, are not due to a nature. They are not even referred to the body of the subject. They are related to the partner or to the position of the partners toward each other. The problem is about penetration, for instance, is the one who is penetrated the younger and the poorest, or is he the elder or the richest? Who is rich? Who is poor? Who is young? Who is old? That's the problem about this kind of situation, so that it is clear that the penetration is a kind of social relation or a kind of, of relation in which what is important is the social status, the social position of the partner. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. As you see, the value table of the sexual acts depends in no way on the existence or on the reality of something like the sexuality with its own forms or norms or differences. It is not even related to the psychological individual with his pleasures, his uh, feelings, and so on. The different sexual acts are deciphered through the grid of social relations. They take their value as a kind of social activity. To have sex is principally to get involved in a kind of social relation in the center of which you find this particular social relation, which is the penetration. And the social relation can interfere and has, of course, to interfere with other social relations. It takes place in a field of equality or inequality, of social proximity or distance, in a world of wealth and poverty. And in those interferences lay the factors which make the differences of the moral value of different sexual acts. Well, now let's turn to the other paragraphs of the, the text. That means the paragraph which are devoted to the acts which are not conformed to the law and to the acts which are opposed to nature. Artemidor treats them in two paragraphs. The first one, though, is devoted to the acts which are contrary or opposed to the law. In fact, the classification, uh, uh, which is not very coherent since it has recourse to two different criteria, is still more vicious and perverse than that. You can find the theory of what is and what is not the natural way of having sex in the paragraph about what is not conformed to law. All that is rather complicated. But let's put aside those different questions about law and nature and degree and Hellenistic thought. I'd like to point out the fact that Artemidorus considered as non-conformed to law incest. The incest of father with his own children. First one has most of the time a dangerous signification, and particularly when the father dreams that he penetrates his son or his own daughter when they are less than five years old. That's bad. The incest with mother is much more favorable since the dream image of the mother has the signification either of earth or of the city, or the wealth of nature, and so on. In this development about incest, Artemidorus starts indicating what is natural in the sexual act with a woman. And significantly, the relations between men 
are never taken into account in this analysis. What is natural? It is the traditional position of partner, the woman laying on the back and the man laying over her. Any other position is a following Artemidorus, morally bad, or is at least a kind of excess. But what is really bad, what is the worst, what is deeply opposed to nature, is the uh, oral relation and any kind of oral relation. And then after that, which belongs to the paragraph uh, uh, about the incest, in a curious way, after that begins the last paragraph, which is devoted to what is by itself per se opposed to nature. And the enumeration is quite strange because are opposed to nature, the fact. First, to have sex with oneself, to have sex with gods, to have sex with dead people, to have sex with animals, and also it is opposed to nature for women to have sex with one another. Three of those categories of sex opposed to nature, three of these categories are almost obvious, since sex is, as we have seen, a kind of social relation between human beings, we can easily understand why relations with gods, with the people, with the animals are opposed to nature. But what about women and what about what? The Greek word Artemidorus uses throws, I think, light on what he means when he says that it is opposed to nature, either to have sex with oneself or for women to have sex together. In both cases, the Greek word Artemidorus uses is perainein or perainestai. And those two words means either penetrate or to be penetrated. Then, when Artemidorus speaks of having sex with oneself, he does not mean masturbation, which is paradoxically quite absent of all this classification of sexual activity, as if it did not exist, no importance at all. By having sex with oneself, mean the fantasy of self-penetration, which of course is impossible and is titled opposed to nature. And when he speaks of women having sex together as quite unnatural, we may be surprised if we remember how indulgent he was, the same after for men penetrating each other, even penetrating one's own son was not one opposed to nature. But if two women having sex together do something quite unnatural, the reason is that penetrating is never opposed to nature, and sex between women is opposed to nature since they are obliged to use devices and several instruments for the penetration. It is the instrumental necessity which makes the sex between women unnatural, but the sex between men, of course, is not all unnatural. You see that this text is far from being simple. The fact that he has never recourse to theory or to any kind of systematization prevents us to solve a lot of paradoxes and contradictions. But I think that this text can be a useful point of departure for this seminar. Well, this text belongs to the late antiquity. When it was written, Christianity has been developing for nearly a century. But as a dream interpretation, the book takes root in a deep tradition. It does not pretend to any kind of innovation. And since it shows a lot of evaluation, uh, distinctions, assimilations, we can find also in uh, those documents Dover has studied for classic Greek in Greece in his great book about Greek homosexuality, then we can recognize that Artemidorus text bears witness on a very long tradition. Two, in this tradition, the sexual acts seem to be principally social acts a kind of relations to other people. And the value 
of the act depends on the legitimacy of this relation, or at least on the legitimacy of mixing, relating with different types of relations. The sexual activity is a relational activity. Of course, the sexual activity implies a physical relation, and this physical relation consists in penetration. Penetration is the essence of the sexual act, but penetration is a kind of relation sees as a sign of superiority, of victory, of expense. So it is a kind of social relation. For there is, however, a form of this social act which is more valuable than all other forms. It is the relation with one's own wife, if she consents, and if this happens in a very defin definite sex game where the position of partner is very strictly codified and justified by necessity of procreation, in this case, you have the best form possible of sexual act. So you can see that the pattern of the elephant is at least for a part present as early as in this text. The value of marriage, the value of procreation is there. But what's important is that is the fact that this pattern, which is clearly outlined in the text, belongs to an sexual ethics which is organized around relational conception of sex acts and sex activity. And what will happen after this? First, of course, the reinforcement of the elephant pattern, but that is not due to Christianity, but to the late pagan philosophy and to the late pagan ethics, and then there will be another modification, much more subtle. This modification takes place with Christianity, or I should say within Christianity, and more precisely, with a certain development of Christianity in the fourth and fifth century, and this modification has to do with this relational nature of sex act. It is, if I may say, the, this very small transformation which put the action no more on the penetration as a kind of social relation, but on the single fact of erection as the act of one individual, one single This translation from penetration to erection is, I think, what the Christianity has brought to this world. And it's quite clear with Augustine, but we'll speak about that later. So now, not the choice. Either I can give you a very brief, very short schema of what was this uh, philosophical reinforcement of the elephant pattern in the Stoic text among the Stoic philosophers, or we can have a discussion about this text as you want. I would like now to to those practical treatises written by philosophers about the everyday life and the way people have to behave, not only if they want to become philosophers, but even if they want to have access to a happy life, concrete life. Many of the texts I quote come from Stoic sources, and it is in the fact that Stoic philosophy has been very influential in this moral education during the Hellenistic and Roman period. But I'd like to introduce two remarks. The first one is that this pattern of morality does not belong to the old Stoicism, but to the moyen Stoicism and to the late Stoicism. It is not a logical consequence of the doctrine. It has been, during the Hellenistic period, an inflection, a new trend. And the second remark is that with two differences, you can find the same pattern in other philosophical schools, among Pythagorean and even within Epicurean. Clutarchos, who was a constant adversary of Stoic philosophy, said about marriage and about sex exactly the same thing the Stoics did. So what is this philosophical pattern of sexual ethics? It is, I think, very close to what François Sal wrote in the beginning of the 17th century. And it is, I think, the development of this pattern of morality we uh, found in uh, Artemidus. Five points. First, value of marriage. 
there was a traditional question either for the philosophical life or for the everyday life. And this traditional question was the object of famous discussion and diatribes. Well, do we have to marry a gametheon? In the beginning, or at least in the third century and so on, in the beginning it happened that the answer to this question, a gametheon, was positive but also negative. And for instance, it was always negative among the Epicureans, and often negative also among the Stoics. We don't have to mind. But the answer became more and more often positive during this Hellenistic period. And uh, at the period of the Roman Empire, the negative answer, we don't have to marry, was very rare. Marriage was not only recommended as a social necessity, but as a way of life deeply rooted in nature, in the universal nature of human beings. Epictet, for instance, said, and then I read in French for the same reason, Epictet wrote, L'homme accomplit sa nature d'être humain. Il accomplit sa nature d'être humain en étant citoyen, en se mariant, en ayant des enfants, en vénérant les dieux et en prenant soin de ses parents. This necessity of marriage was justified by three reasons. You can find them in the fragments of Musonius Rufus, uh, which uh, Stobius has quoted uh, two, two centuries later. The three reasons are. <coughs> One, in dividing the human beings in men and women, and in rooting in the heart of each uh, the desire for the other sex, the author of nature has shown explicitly his will. He wants that men and women live together. Two, human beings are like bees and not like wolves. They are destined to live in society. The nature of the social relations is, of course, and that's the traditional idea in Greek philosophy in Greek society, the nature of the social relations is filia, friendship. But, and that I think the point, the important point, this filia, this friendship, you can find it in all its strength in the attachment of married people. Eugenius Rufus wrote, in femme est plus dévoué à son mari qu'un ami peut être dévoué à un ami ou un frère à son frère. And that's, I think, a decisive formulation for the first time, or one first time. The traditional relationship in the Greek and Roman city, blood relationship or friendship, are overwhelmed by the matrimonial relationship. And the idea that the wife and husband are more deeply attached to each other than a friend to a friend, this idea, I think, is something quite important and quite new in Greek society and Greek culture. The problem, of course, is to know at what, which moment exactly this reversal of social relation from uh, friendship to uh, matrimoniality uh, was accomplished. The reason is uh, that cities are not composed with individuals. They are composed with houses, oikos. And these houses are composed of married people. Marriage is not only, as it was for Platon or Aristotle, one of the means for the city to survive. It is the basic self of the society. That's the first point, the first principle of those uh, uh, philosophers of the Roman period, uh, marriage, we have to marry because the marriage has a natural value. Second point, adultère is forbidden. Epictet wrote, l'adultère détruit les relations de voisinage, l'amitié et l'humanité. It was an old idea that adultère was a kind of injustice, of adikia, because in adultère, You stole a woman who is not your wife. You can find that in Zenon and in all the, the old Stoic philosophy. But in the old formulation, when you commit adultery, you stole the wife of another. In this old formulation, that means that there is an adultery if and only if 
a man has sex with the wife of another. And nobody at this moment could have in mind the strange idea that a married man having sex with either a free woman or with a servant or with a courtesan could be an adulte. This idea was impossible uh, at a certain moment. But after the third or second century, you began to see the other idea that even when it is a man who is married, even in this case, the fact that he commits, that he has sex with another woman, that makes him adulte. You find that in the pseudo Aristoteles, that means the third century, but it is the single formulation at this moment. And then in the first century before and after Christ, then you find the, the open this formulation. And for instance, Musonius Rufus writes, beaucoup tolère que l'homme marié ait des relations avec une, une esclave, mais est-ce que l'on accepterait qu'une femme mariée ait des rapports avec une esclave? This argument is interesting since it implies a symmetry between wife and husband regarding truthfulness and sexual interdiction. But this symmetry is important, but I think it is rather ambiguous. It is, on one part, the elevation of the wife to the same juridical and social status as the husband, but you can also recognize here the assimilation of the man's desire for a servant, something which was quite normal, the assimilation of the man's desire to the awful behavior of a woman who gets fucked by a slave. And in this sentence of Mujumush refuse, there is at the same time a, a juridical elevation of the woman and a moral disqualification of the man's desire. That's the second point, condemnation of the adulterer is, is uh, public. Third point, the, that disqualification of uh, the sexual act in itself. It was a lieu commun among the physicians to compare the sexual act and the orgasm to a spasm, to a kind of epileptic crisis. But the numerous physicians who were more or less inspired by Stoic philosophers took argument of this spasmodic nature of sexual act to say that the sexual act is dangerous per se, that you have to take care and impose your sexual activity a very strict economy. And for instance, in a physician of the second or third century, I do not remember, Rufus Defez, different from Rufus Defez, wrote this, you mustn't have sex, ni trop souvent, ni de façon prolongée, ni si vous avez mal au rein, ni si vous avez mal à la tête, ni si vous avez mal aux pieds, ni si vous avez mal au ventre, ni si vous avez mal à la poitrine, ni s'il fait trop chaud, ni si c'est après un repas, ni si c'est après un pain, ni si vous voulez garder une bonne mémoire, ni si vous êtes adolescent et de toute façon le retarder le plus possible. <laughs> and uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, uh, was proud uh, that he did not have sex between uh, before the years. And you know that the uh, interruption entre chaque naissance à cette époque au XVIIe siècle était trois ans. Donc ça correspond bien. Third point is this disqualification of the sex activity. Four point. The sex is legitimate only in marriage, and even in marriage, it is justified only for procreative purposes. The objective of, of sexual activities in marriage is not pleasure, but birth of children. Ocellus Lucanus wrote, Uc en edones eneca alla technon geneseo, that is uh, the, the, the formula you find uh, all during the late antiquity, and so on. It's not for the pleasure. It's for children. And Eugenius Rufus uh, wrote, Les hommes qui ne sont pas débauchés et immoraux doivent considérer que seuls sont légitimes les rapports sexuels qui ont lieu dans le mariage et pour la naissance des enfants. Les rapports qui visent le seul plaisir sont injustes et illégitimes, même s'ils ont lieu dans le mariage. All other kinds of sexual activity without this procreative intention are, says Ossilus Lucanus, injustes. This notion of dikaiosuno 
in the sexual activity is, I think, very important. And a fifth and last point, even that is not enough. The philosophers of this period gave prescriptions about the way married people should have sex together on the side of the husband. The husband had to observe the rules of modesty, idols. Plutarch said, quand les vêtements de la femme sont ôtés, elle doit pourtant encore garder un vêtement, et ce vêtement, c'est celui de sa pudeur. Obligation, then, of having sex in obscurity. First, because married people must not see anything shameful when they are with the other, and anything shameful on the body of the other, and because they mustn't keep in mind any erotic image of their partner. If you want to be pure in your everyday life, please put the light off when you make sex, even with your wife. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at nyihumanities.org. That's one word, nyihumanities.org.